The Snowden Leaks. I remember where I was when I first heard about it, and I remember how angry I was about it. I'm going to say up front, I'm one of those people who feel that governments should have some secrets, particularly when they're in the best interests of national security. I didn't feel then, nor do I feel now, that Edward Snowden was acting in the best interests of the United States. Rather, I think the Snowden leaks were designed more to embarrass the U.S. on the world stage. Flash forward to today, 10 years later, and you see how other countries have spent millions developing their own surveillance tools to eavesdrop on their own citizens and foreign nationals. I'm not saying these recently revealed tools are a direct result. I'm just saying that what Snowden revealed about U.S. secrets showed other countries that it was okay for them to develop their own. Snowden is in Russia today, which is very interesting. He's a full-blown Russian citizen. And in the next few minutes, I'm going to be discussing a leak of data that reveals some of the secret tools used in Russia. In some ways, it's the equivalent of the Snowden leaks. Only the leaks came from Russia. Kind of ironic, isn't it? Stay tuned. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from the makers of Mayhem Security. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm discussing documents leaked to German journalists outlining a Russian defense contractor's program in development for certain tools to be used by the Russian security services for various purposes. Hey, I do everything on this podcast. I don't have a crew. I write the episodes. I do the sound design. I don't create the music. That's a service. But everything I do, I do myself. So I'd really like to point out that Joe was in a crowded cafe when we talked. And it was a great conversation. And I really didn't want to redo it because the sound quality wasn't that great. Fortunately, I heard about this beta for sound engineering. Adobe uses machine learning to do what I would have had to spend hours doing manually. That is, isolating Joe's voice. Adobe, it did that work in a matter of minutes. Say what you will about the supposed AI revolution. Really, it's not happening soon. I promise you that. But there are these small things that it can do. These menial tasks, like sound design, which are now automated so that you, the listener, you can get a crisp recording. And I... I can spend my time working on the next episode of The Hacker Mind. I don't normally wade into international politics. This is an information security podcast. However, the pedigree of this, well, it was worth it. I've talked with Kyle Hemsloven, CEO of Huntress, and with John Hammond, lead researcher there. So, when I was presented with the lead threat intelligence manager at Huntress, how could I refuse? Yes, certainly. Hello, my name is Joe Slowick. I am a threat intelligence manager uh, working at Huntress in developing threat intel as well as threat hunting and detection engineering uh, mechanisms. For those of you who don't know about Huntress, I'll let Joe explain. Huntress is a security company dedicated to defending the 99%, providing a affordable and scalable security solution aimed at small and medium-sized businesses. 
So we're going to be talking about something called the Vulcan files. What are they? They're a set of leaked emails and other documents implicating a Russian company, NTC Vulcan, in acts of cybercrime and political interference, such as influencing the 2016 U.S. presidential election. This is a contractor that was doing all of this rather than a specific tool. This is a framework, a way of gaining intelligence and planting malware. Yes, so this is a full-fledged government research program of what you'd expect coming out of a DARPA or a contract that goes to raising out of the Allen or building a, you know, well, the, the documents are quite interesting. They are also all unfortunately Russian, as one might expect. Um, but just defining what are the capabilities, the deliverables, how will like, the contract be judged as such a failure, and all sorts of other very interesting elements of how that sort of not just development, but even the procurement process behind it uh, goes about. Joe presented his talk at DEF CON 31. The topic, though, is relevant today as another researcher is presenting a similar talk at Sector 23 in Toronto. So, people are still talking about the leaked files and what they hold. So how did we get these documents in the first place? In the days following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, these files were leaked to a German newspaper by a whistleblower who was opposed to that war. As with any leakage of this size, multiple media sites then worked together, and this consortium they thoroughly vetted and authenticated the documents with Western analysts. The final published result, known as the Vulcan Files, appeared in several newspapers worldwide on March 30th, 2023. You probably don't remember it. I know I didn't. Joe, he walks us through all of this. And there is a narrative thread that grows through this. So to kick things off, in, well, earlier this year, uh, a few German journalists working for German state broadcasting had acquired this source sensitive documents or project-sided documents relating to the spiral warfare mechanisms for Russian intelligence agencies, the GRU, SBR, and SVR. And in reviewing these documents, it revealed quite astounding capabilities in scaling and automating both uh, intrusion operations and information collection, as well as uh, information operations and disinformation uh, campaigns in addition to collection. So really seeing the nuts and bolts for how a state-sponsored, state-directed signals intelligence and cyber program get developed. Uh, the German journalists had worked through a organization called Paper Trail Media and would share that research with other organizations ranging from the Washington Post, the Guardian, uh, and other global uh, journalist entities. And then after the documents were posted, while there was an initial burst of activity from some security companies such as Mandy and Dragos uh, and others, it then seemed like it promptly faded away from the uh, everyone's attention. So whether that's because people were focused on Taylor Swift's tour or Donald Trump getting indicted or who, who knows what, it just seemed that that data never got the recognition it should have. Because if you start looking at the programs in question, they provide for some very interesting capabilities in really scanning how cyber operations work. So the item that I'm focused on within the presentations, since there's a lot of material that's been publicly released related to this, is a program called ScanV or ScanBy. I did some digging and I found that ScanV is used for searching for weak spots in systems to be targeted. It's a reconnaissance tool. 
Um, so scan dash V um, is the name given in the project documentation. It's associated with an entity tracked by Western private sector intelligence companies at Sandworm. Sandworm is the Western name for a group of Russian hackers that are associated with some of the biggest hacks in recent years. Not Petya, for example, in May of 2018, and then the attack on the South Korean Olympics later that same year. The Sandworm Group gained its name from the Frank Herbert book Dune, where Paul Atreides is battling the Sandworms, among other forces. The group got its name because of comments in the code they kept referencing the book. Sandworm, so the entity responsible for it, ranging from numerous white malware in Ukraine to both, um, well, three known at this point attempts at disrupting electricity distribution or transmission within Ukraine. So definitely a very concerning actor. And the platform in question can be or scan by. It's interesting because it provides a way of creating a system for evaluating endpoints, scanning them effectively, looking for the applicability of publicly known or privately resourced vulnerabilities, and then harvesting these items into a network of um, administered communication nodes. And what's interesting about this was that you know, adversaries use command and control infrastructure all the time. They can do this either by renting or buying a service on some virtual private server uh, entity, like a digital ocean or an XML line, or they can leverage uh, compromised legitimate infrastructure through a WordPress vulnerability or uh, a vulnerability in network losses and such to proxy traffic through a third party application. One of the things that interested me was the connection of the Vulkan files to Sandworm. What's interesting about ScanV is that it enables Sandworm effectively, if this program was successful, to do this in a way that scales and automates a lot of the activity to build essentially vast networks for both information collection as well as for proxying traffic to victim nodes to obfuscate where that traffic is coming from and build a more resilient community control phone. So that's very interesting. In addition to Snowden, there's also the Shadow Brokers, who sold a number of offensive security tools. So, one has to ask, are any of the Vulcan tools new? Certain elements of this, we've seen this sort of activity before. And we've seen certain elements of this in Russian operations, including some of the stone words, such as uh, a couple of Internet of Things, device botnets, such as VPN filter and Cyclops Blink, which were focused on compromising routers and similar devices for the same sorts of purposes, but without evidence of seeing the backend infrastructure that is available in scan of managing, monitoring, and continuing thousands of endpoints together. So the exploit portion we've seen from Russian Nexus actors over the last five years, but getting a glimpse of that backend management infrastructure, including both uh, unclassified and classified endpoints in documentation that was released along with the we disclosed documents is very interesting because it starts showing the administrative overhead that lies behind creating a capability that exists on this scale. But it's not just the Russians who have done this. Uh, we can look at other examples going to the mid-2010s, like the great canon associated with Chinese network monitoring capabilities. So everyone's pretty familiar with the Great Firewall of limiting information coming in. Uh, the Monk School and Citizen Lab published an interesting paper on the Great Canon in 2015, uh, how that same capability of deep packet inspection and network monitoring was used to sort of flip the script for offensive purposes, deliver exploits to traffic that was going through monitored nodes 
to again create massive or mass widespread exploitation on an automated level. Uh, like VPN filter and Cyclops Blink, we don't have an idea of what the backend infrastructure looked like for this activity, but certainly that idea of automated exploitation and doing so based upon two program selectors and similar was there. That leads to a third previous example, which is where things get really interesting. We have to go back to the Snowden experience, and I can either confirm or deny the veracity or accuracy of the information disclosed by Mr. Snowden and others, but based upon the analysis of such data from other parties, one tool that caught some interest, but not anywhere near as much, and I don't think it's software that didn't see as much interest, is a program called Quantum. So the Snowden leak was actually a series of tools ostensibly used by the U.S. government, National Security Agency, or NSA. These tools, they each had specific names, such as Prism or Turbine, and they had specific purposes. One tool, Quantum, is a tool which spreads various attacks, ranging from spam messages to instant messaging compromises, to take control of botnets. Uh, so everyone focused on Prism and some other things for the very legitimate uh, human rights and privacy concerns around those. But this quantum program, which is described in publications such as Wired, uh, Foxit, and other security vendors, was very interesting because you see in the late 2000s, you know, early, early aughts, early early aughts, etc., that it appears that Western intelligence agencies had developed and deployed a mechanism similar to what scanning looks like today of having a system set up to automatically scan traffic or profile devices and then deliver an exploit thing based upon the profile related in an automated way to build out a network of compromised nodes. So we've told a story here of like, okay, scan doesn't look all that novel, but what we can see is a learning over time of adversaries going potentially as far back as the Snowden leaks, where adversaries are paying attention when these things get disclosed, even if after the media, some of these stories seem to fall off the radar quite quickly. And one of the stories that runs through this entire thread of one particular program of the scan tour is a popular conception uh, that hacking operations is one person on one computer doing bad stuff to a target. Whereas modern, scalable, state-sponsored uh, cyber operations are more likely to be reflected in the cube farm that you'd see or whatever in a call center or similar environment where you have tens, maybe hundreds of personnel working different bases of an operation and trying to gain efficiencies through that operation wherever possible so that those operations can scale effectively towards regional and global ambitions. And I think that's the real story that we see that it's supported by or confirmed by the Vulcan leaks is that we see programs like SCAN as well as Amazon, which is an information operations uh, capability that similarly offers for semi-automated profiling of traffic and delivery of things like fake SMS messaging or man-in-the-middle communications and such to deliver um, specific messaging to targets and victims and so forth that the real players in the information warfare space are those that can automate, who can create tools and mechanisms that allow an individual operator to conduct dozens, if not hundreds, of missions simultaneously through the tooling and backend processing enabled by tools like SCAN and going back all the way to the alleged quantum program uh, disclosed in the early 2010s. And that's really where the future of cyber operations are. And that makes things 
problematic for defenders because it means that from a defender's perspective, or even from an offense, a someone who wants to emulate offensive operations perspective, our high-end threat actors are no longer operating in a way where I can say, like, oh, if I block this IP, I can ensure that I'm saving myself from potential activity from this adversary. But that adversary really has a entire suite of potential endpoints that they could use as their next top traffic stop to where it is that they want to go or for exploring information back. They can adapt those routes as defenders spot individual nodes by using potentially vast network to uh, maintain operational security and to build resilient operations that would not be very easy to take down like we've seen with certain operations or botnets and so forth, but this would be a much more difficult uh, animal to tackle to try to defeat it, basically. And so that's the story. It's just telling how, based upon some really interesting leaks that get us into the nitty-gritty behind-the-scenes look at how Russia sources its cyber warfare tools, that you can see that this is not a unique feature, but something that we've seen echoes of going back almost 20 years actually over 20 years at this point, for how high-profile, high-end state-sponsored operators have grown and adapted their cyber warfare programs over the years to build them into efficient, semi-automated, scalable, and resistant systems. So the end goal, it's always intelligence. Uh, potentially. So that's the other thing that makes it interesting with SCAN and its association with Sandworm, because Sandworm is one of the entities that we know has conducted multiple offensive, disruptive operations in the cyber realm. Um, so one thing that is notable about Sandworm for operations going back at least as far back as 2015 is they are notorious for using compromised legitimate infrastructure for kinetic destroy purposes. For example, in the Indestroyer uh, event in 2016... You may be already familiar with Indestroyer by its other name, Crash Override. Indestroyer is a malware framework considered to have been used in the cyber attack on Ukraine's power grid on December 17, 2016. The command and control nodes that were used to deploy and then trigger the Indestroyer payload that led to the 2016 electric utility disruption were Tor nodes, but they were Tor nodes that were appeared to have been compromised uh, by Sandworm to serve as intermediate nodes for launching this operation. Similarly, with VPN filter, um, while it appears that that could have been used for intelligence collection purposes, because there are various modules for sniffing traffic and uh, providing ways to collect on it, there are also modules that were capable of reading Modbus traffic, which is associated with industrial control systems, which, while there's no evidence that there was any sort of offensive capability tied to that Modbus module, it hits at um, at least a desire or a possibility that Sandworm, given its history, could have shifted that module to something more active than just passively looking at Modbus traffic for potential industrial disruption purposes. So it's not just gathering intelligence. It also has the potential to cripple parts of the infrastructure by going after operational technology, or OT. These are devices that are not traditionally attached to the Internet, such as the Iranian centrifuges that were the target of Duxnet. To work, Stuxnet had to worm its way into the industrial control facility and then, only then, attack Siemens System 7 PLCs. It did so by first burning a few Windows Zero Days to get there. So are these tools targeting OT systems in a similar way? Yes, potentially, or even just IT. So another facet of this is that we've seen throughout the current Ukraine conflict that there have been 
denial of service, distributed denial of service attacks against Ukrainian services. And the opt-in shot goes off as being cyber network annoyance, as opposed to cyber network attack, uh, so to speak. That it's a DDoS, you pay some service, it gets mitigated, it goes away. Well, if you're operating in a degraded environment, uh, you're under a physical and virtual attack as the Ukrainians are, and you start removing sources of communication to the populace, uh, by bringing down certain services, what is the problem? Um, and if you look at something like an infrastructure that could be set up via scan, it's not just the idea of building up that infrastructure, but also tasking that infrastructure to do something, which could range from something seemingly as simplistic, but at a very large scale, as targeted disruptive activity through the you know, island service techniques to leveraging those nodes as next stage attack nodes for whatever networks they're associated with, or for similar items based upon the profile and the compromised loads in Russia. I'm familiar with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and how Russia used malware to go after the routers that were used in the Ukraine. It seems like Russia is developing, or other entities associated with Russia, more diverse tools, playing the field, doing DDoS, and association with something else. Right. And it's interesting that you know, as you see the Ukraine conflict, uh, some might look at this as throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what sticks in terms of the variety of activities that have been leveraged. But are very consistent, especially from a sandworm or GRU perspective, um, desire to deploy and leverage disruptive capabilities. Like even, for example, the industry of two events. Um, if we look at that, it appears that Ukrainian authorities will be able to, with cooperation from SS and Microsoft, to get ahead of that event and stop it from happening. But looking at the capabilities that were deployed, yes, there was this industrial control system mechanism in Destroyer 2, but also a series of wipers going against Windows systems, uh, Solaris systems that are still found in operational technology environments and similar, of really going after in quite blunt and, you know, you know to the extent we could use the word violence in the cyber landscape, but violent way, of network infrastructure. And that's been a very consistent mechanism over time is getting into networks and deploying a wiper or something that might look like ransomware, but really is just essentially a wiper of some sort um, for cyber disruptive purposes. And tying this back into the Vulcan documents, it can easily be seen of something like an infrastructure maintenance and management system built by SCAN can be leveraged to build a resilient shooting platform, so to speak, you know, in cyber terms, using these analogies sometimes, but it works in this case. Um, but developing a uh, array of nodes that can be used to then pursue infrastructure for following disruptive purposes and making it very much guesswork on the side of defenders and where these sorts of intrusions or where these sorts of payloads will come from. So is there a sophistication or is there a lack of sophistication with these tools? Now, there's definitely thought behind this. And while we can't prove that these tools have actually been deployed at this point in time, that's been something I've been trying to do for the last year or so. Um, but I'm looking at one of the other tools that was neat, something called Amasis. Um, This is the information operations platform I uh, referenced earlier. Hmm. And it's designed as a way to build a mobile mechanism that you could deploy into, say, Occupy territory that with physical access to cell phone towers and similar infrastructure, you plug this system in and it allows for you to 
profile threat and uh, source information or SMS messages and other similar communications over over that network will also to insert mechanisms into it. And if we look at things like the current Ukraine conflict, that sort of capability, because we've already seen evidence of Russia doing things like rerouting network connections in Ukraine to put towards Russian infrastructure, putting in the routing tables and physically running uh, communication lines so that occupied areas of Ukraine are getting the Russian version of the internet and all that comes with that, you know, CERN and so many other things. Well, looking at a platform like this, which, you know, these documents go back a couple of years at this point, it, it appears to be a tool that perfectly aligns with that idea of like, okay, the internet area, we want to do some sort of population control and messaging. And this would be a perfect mechanism to insert into civilian communication networks for that information operation perspective. So remember, the Vulcan files refer to a framework for gathering intelligence and launching malware. For the intelligence gathering, how would that look? Joe uses a simple analogy. What if Washington, D.C. were under siege from a hostile entity? And that entity, then, could use the Vulcan files to burrow deep into the communications channels that we all take for granted. They could gather intelligence about where people were, and they could also plant misinformation so that people could be identified and then arrested. This is very scary stuff. Correct. So, for example, this would be... If we were both in Washington, D.C., and all of a sudden it was occupied or put under martial law or something, and I wanted to send you a text message about, like, hey, there's a checkpoint here or some other information, that that potential communication string can never be intercepted to figure out who's talking to who, start building up a network of, like, who are the people I need to be worried about uh, as far as potential resistance or similar, but also to inject into that communication stream to say, like, oh, maybe the checkpoint's actually over here to mislead someone to get captured or to deliver a information operations payload like our, you know, the authorities are benign and there is no reason to rise against them or some other things. Um, but doing that in a way that scales and that gets tied directly into the infrastructure in question so that it becomes difficult to detect and almost impossible to defeat because it's tied into the local physical communication infrastructure. So when Joe said it was sophisticated, I would suspect that they were doing something around like an S7 level communication, pretty deep into the communications network. Yes, so again, uh, once you have physical access to the equipment, it's just a case of plugging in the box in and then letting it do the combination of deep packet inspection and protocol interception to allow those other capabilities to then be brought to So I understand that with the Snowden leak, obviously, the NSA isn't going to come out and say, yeah, those are our tools. We designed them that way. No, that isn't how that works. The trouble is the Snowden leak actually played out over months and months. It was relentless. There was so much discussion about each new tool and what it could do. And the media, they had specific stories that they planned to write on all of it. Contrast that with the Vulcan files. That didn't happen. The release in March of 2023, the news wasn't played out over months and months, kind of came and went. And there weren't specific stories planned to run through the summer. Indeed, the first I heard about the Vulcan files was not last spring, but at DEFCON 31. It is interesting 
Um, why that's the case, I don't know. I do know that I have talked with multiple people privately about these documents and their implications and so forth. So people within the security community, I realize the significance behind these. It is disappointing, though, um, the lack of more general attention. Because really, after the week that these were published, I not seen a mention of these again. And I'm a pretty devoted follower of various news sources on this sort of activity because I have to be. Um, so again, whether it's distraction or it's like, oh, it's Russian, so I don't care, versus, you know, oh, the US government is doing what with our Facebook and, and sit work. Uh, you know, there was definitely a more sense of like this impacts me directly, whereas this appears to be a much more emotional impact scenario for most Western audiences. So I have some experience with covering stories and then having a troll army attack the story afterward. I'm wondering if Joe had thought about any of the blowback from surfacing this. I mean, he's speaking at DEF CON, and DEF CON is a pretty secure community. Once it gets out into the real world, any thoughts about how Joe might handle the troll armies? Well, the thought has crossed my mind. Um, it's really more with associating this activity with some other historical items that I think people still don't want to talk about, like quantum and some of those other items as being potential inspirations for this. My response is that this is a, nothing that I'm presenting in my presentation is privately or you know sourced from some deep dark corner of the web or uh, some human that has talked to me and has pledged me to secure the anonymity. I have a detailed reference section that outlines where you can find all the information I'm talking about, so it's all out there. It's just a question of putting it all together for what's the broader story being told. So, you know, if people want to get Buffered about this sort of thing, like it's going to happen one way or the other. But for more impactful consequences beyond me, my social media gets screwed around with, which who knows the value of Twitter these days? Any anyway, yeah. um, I'm nothing worried about that because this this has all been out there in some cases for over you know, 15 years at this point. Mm -hmm. Or a troll farm of having you know several hundred or thousand people also it's like simultaneously at the direction of some governmental entity. So are there any takeaways from the Vulcan files that we should focus on? I think if there's one lesson or observation at a higher meta level from this, it's really about placing events in context that CyberNow is a realm that's existed for in some shape or form for 30 years at this point, even if we've been really tracking it on a public level for maybe five to 10. And not knowing that history can blind us to how some of these items can be related or represent that you know, organizations trying to solve similar problems will evolve in similar ways uh, because it's just the thing that works. Um, the second reason why dolphins and fish have similar fin structures because that's just how it works and maybe streamlined in a water environment. And it's being able to take a step back from the immediate recording and say, like, where, where else have I seen this? Where else is this apply? How does this uh, influence and drive future evolution within this space and we start getting the really interesting stories of where cyber operations have been and where they're going. Joe reminded me of something. Russia doing all these things and throwing spaghetti on the wall and seeing what sticks and everything. There's a point that's to be made 
with the commonality of stuff we see from China and from other countries. I I think, if nothing else, the failures or perceived failures of a lot of Russian operations, uh, if nothing else, were providing a variety of other entities ranging from North Korea to the bye-byes. So this works, this doesn't avoid this. It's providing, like anything else, uh, um, just as there will be analysts who review the ground war in Eastern and Southern Ukraine for lessons of how modern conflict between similarly adversaries or entities uh, functions. Five, 10, 15 years from now, people will look back at this event and will analyze the cyber component to see what worked, what didn't, and how we can learn from that moving forward. And no one's going to go away from this area anytime soon. I'd like to thank Joe Slowick for talking about all of this. As he mentioned, the information here is public, and it has been public. It's not new. What is new is the context of seeing how the Vulcan files helped Sandworm and others reach its goals, and more recently, how those documents helped shed more light on some of the attacks associated with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. As I said up front, I think governments should have some secrets, if they are in the best interests of national security. I do agree that when those secrets are used to hurt people, then there needs to be transparency, even if it's after the fact. The world still needs to know what was done. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast, tell a friend. I bet there are others who like commercial-free narrative infosec podcasts. I have so many stories about hackers who are making a positive difference in the world. And be sure to check out Error Code, my new podcast that focuses on IoT and embedded security. Error Code is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon. And tell me what you like and even what you don't. Hey, I have some great conversations coming up with the rise of bots, the threat from China and Vietnam, and more research on the dark web and ransomware. Subscribe today. The Hacker Mind is brought to you every two weeks, commercial-free, by For All Secure, the makers of Mayhem, an application security testing solution you can try for free at mayhem.security. For The Hacker Mind, I'm Robert Famosi.